is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Well, he's back. Lots of noise, raucous, L.A. City Council meeting. And it was all because of Councilman Kevin DeLeon. He made a brief appearance before protesters yelled and made a big scene. The council then went into recess before coming out without DeLeon. Of course, he's refused to resign following the leak of those racist remarks caught on tape. All this, of course, comes just before Karen Bass takes over as mayor. That starts on Sunday. We'll go in-depth on it all. More and more men are having problems with work. They're not. We look into the reasons for this troubling trend. And a new study finds lots of people are moving to areas where there is a high risk of wildfires. Why? Tis the season for Oscar-worthy movies to play in theaters, but there is a problem right now. The movies are playing, but hardly anybody's going to the theaters to see them. We'll go into depth into why this is and what this means for the future of theaters. Dating these days can be a challenge for people. Throw in inflation, and it's an even bigger challenge because now money is a factor. We'll explain how people are trying to impress without being thought of as too cheap. Could it be they're not going to the movies because they're not good? You would think, yeah, well, I mean, that could okay, be I wasn't going to say that. Well, maybe they're, maybe they're stinkers. It could be. Could so be. That might explain. Possible. It. Yeah, we'll, we'll look into that. <laughs> but we start, though. With Kevin DeLeon returning to L.A. City Hall and Council Chambers, with us is Louis DeCipio, political analyst and political science professor at UC Irvine. Thanks for being with us. So I'm not quite sure what Mr. DeLeon accomplished today, although in a way it's kind of an interesting dilemma, right? Because there are those people who say he should be attending because he's being paid by the people to do a job. And then, of course, you have those who say he should not be attending because he should have resigned. So where does he win on this one? Well, I don't think he can win. I think he was testing the waters today, and uh, the waters were clearly uh, quite rough. Uh, So he left very quickly. Um, I think he saw that he didn't have much support from his fellow council people. um, And, you know, the audience seems to be a little bit more mixed. And uh, right before that, as you said, he had some uh, supporters who stood up and called for him to return to do his job. Uh, did this smell a little bit like a stunt? Maybe Kevin DeLeon uh, pulling a stunt here or maybe his supporters pulling some kind of stunt knowing that he was going to show up today? Oh, I have to imagine there was some coordination there. Um, as I say, I think he was testing the waters. He was seeing how strong the opposition was. Uh, among the other council members about his returning. And I think he saw very quickly that uh, he did not have their support and uh, would probably uh, uh, need to stay away for a little bit longer or perhaps resign, as as some people have suggested. Okay, so let's turn our attention a couple of days from now to Sunday. That's when Karen Bass becomes the next mayor of the city of Los Angeles. And as everybody, I think, knows, who has been following the campaign anyway, she has said that on day one, First time she's become mayor, as soon as she's sworn in, or sometime thereafter, she's going to declare a state of emergency when it comes to the homeless situation in the city of Los Angeles. So I'm wondering, uh, presuming that she keeps her promise and she does that, so what? Well, she has, I think what she is really saying is that she is going to make homelessness the primary focus of her mayoral administration or the early months or years of it. Um, she will need uh, cooperation from the city council uh, because they have to appropriate a lot of funds that she'll need to accomplish her goals. Um, and she's talked about uh, 
public-private partnership. She's also talked about working with community groups. So, you know, it's she can't do a lot on her own, but she can certainly use the the bully pulpit of the mayorality to focus people's attention. Um, she's also lucky in that she has some resources, financial resources, that Mayor Garcetti didn't have. Um, he spent quite a bit of money, uh, but she'll have even more. Uh, given all that, how long of a honeymoon period can she expect to have on this issue? Uh, relatively little. Um, you know, she, she, as I say, she'll she'll use her bully pulpit. She'll bring people's attention to it. But if she doesn't have some quick wins, um, you know, some new initiatives that uh, show that she's uh, actually going to solve the problem, um, she'll be uh, uh, the target of uh, the criticism that uh, Mayor Garcetti was. Um, and he tried to do a lot in this area as well. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Louis uh, DeCipio, political analyst and political science professor at UC Irvine. Right now, though, a new study finds men are having it tough in the workforce. The findings from the Federal Reserve of Boston show about one in nine men ages 25 to 54 are out of the labor market today. Now, that's compared to one in 50 back in the mid-1950s, which does seem like light years ago. John Logan is Director of Labor and Employment Studies at San Francisco State University. John, thanks for being with us. So what is different now? Why are fewer men in that age group anyway in the workforce compared to, as I said, way back in the mid-1950s? Yeah, so this is mostly non-college educated men we're talking about here. And there's been a number of changes, some of which have been many years in the making. Some things are more recent. So structural changes in the economy, uh, you know, particularly the impact of globalization uh, and um, uh, deregulation, deunionization, and more recently, uh, automation. So a lot of the jobs that uh, non-college educated men used to do, um, such as uh, residential construction, such as uh, truck driving, used to be desirable jobs, used to be jobs that paid middle class incomes, came with good benefits, and now are no longer, uh, you know, they're, they're far worse paid, they have worse benefits, uh, a lot of manufacturing jobs, of course, have disappeared. And then you add to that um, two things that really disrupted the employment of this group. Uh, first was the Great Recession between 2008 to 2010, you know, when many of uh, men in the, this age group that we're talking about were kind of getting on the job ladder and, you know, had their careers disrupted. They lost jobs in huge, huge numbers. Many of them were never able to recover from that in terms of the income, in terms of the quality of the job they used to have and and the second was the pandemic and you know what's happened with the pandemic is as we know a lot of people lost their jobs most of them have regained their jobs but you know people who are more college educated who have professional qualifications uh, have often been able to to work from home part of the time to to have more flexible, better paying jobs. Well, uh, Mr. Logan, kind of I wanted to ask you uh, if yeah. if you could tell me uh, these these men who are kind of out of the labor market, yeah. where have they gone? What are they doing? How do they make an ends meet? Yeah, well, it's a very good question. I mean, some of them, you know, might be staying with relatives. Some of them might be working uh, off the books. 
but uh, it, it's actually um, it, it it really affects their their life chances in many ways. I mean, one of the things if you no longer have access to these decent paying jobs with decent benefits, you're far more likely to to uh, far less likely, sorry, to get married and have kids, and that too, that lack of a sort of stable nuclear family if you want you know the role of the traditional male breadwinner the stereotype uh, that means you're also likely less likely to be part of the the paid workforce so you know the fact that you know they have been disproportionately hit by changes in the economy by the recession by the pandemic and then because they have been hit in that way uh you know they're more likely to end up uh you know you, you have problems with, with with lack of stable families, opioid addiction, crime, that all also also keep people out of the, the, yeah, the paid I, I labor gonna, force. Yeah, I was going to say, though, John, if, if uh, in some cases, I presume, some of these guys yeah. are out of the workforce, some of them are not married, but some of them yeah. are. So yeah. does that mean that their their spouse, their wife, becomes the the permanent breadwinner of the family? And, and that must have some repercussions of its own. Yes. I mean, women have, you know, women, particularly uh, working mothers, were pushed out of the labor market at the start of the pandemic in enormous numbers. But most of them have subsequently re-entered the labor market and uh, in higher numbers than have men of this age, non-college educated men of this age. And that was also true during the Great Recession of, like you know, say, uh, uh, 12 years ago or so. It affected working men far more in that case than it did working women. So, yes, if they are married, if they, their, their spouse is, is working, uh, yeah, you know, they're more likely to be the, you know, the main uh, breadwinner within the family. The men might find uh, some gig work, might find some sort of precarious forms of employment, more so than they used to have. But some of them have just dropped out altogether. And, you know, we don't know exactly if this is going to be a long term thing, if it's, uh, you know, some of these men might never re-enter the labor market, even although, you know, in theory, they have many years left to be working. And, you know, that obviously affects them, you know, profoundly, yeah. but it also affects the economy as a whole. You really want to maximize labor market participation amongst yeah. all groups, but particularly amongst groups like this. All right. Uh, thank you very much, uh, John Logan, Director of Labor and Employment Studies at San Francisco State University. Well, still ahead, movie theaters playing a lot of Oscar-worthy films right now, but no one seems to care because the theaters are empty. And we've already explored my theory. <laughs> we'll, we'll hear some other people, what they think, a little bit later on. And by the way, dating, as in like uh, dating, isn't what it used to be, and we'll tell you what that means. I noticed that uh, when you said the words Oscar worthy, you did huge air quotes around <laughs> yes, that. And no Oscar you were worthy. knocking over things with your air quotes. Yes, quote, Oscar worthy, end quote. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, right now, though, a new study finds that people do not seem to be bothered by the risk of wildfires when they move to a new area. It uh, showed a trend nationally of people moving away from areas that get like the heat waves and the hurricanes. But they're moving to areas prone to wildfires, one disaster to another. 
Mahalia Clark is one of the study authors, is an environmental scientist at the University of Vermont. Thank you so much for taking time and, and joining us today. So this is not an issue of people deciding that, uh, hey, wildfire sounds like fun. Let me move there. It's more an issue of they're, they're basing their decision. It sounds to me like, well, I don't like the hurricanes. I don't like the storms, and I don't like these uh, heat wave issues that we get. So let me move over here because it's going to be nicer. Is that is that what it is? They don't appreciate the wildfire danger? Yeah, that's exactly it. People definitely are not thinking, oh, wildfire, that sounds great. Rather, they're weighing a bunch of different factors. And for a lot of people, that's going to be thinking about jobs, where their family lives, and then maybe thinking about some other factors like, oh, California, that has a great climate, you know, access to beaches and mountains. And they're really not thinking about wildfire as a risk because they're not familiar with that. Okay, but here is where uh, I would submit government should be playing a role. Is it not and should it not be? the role of local governments to say to people, to say to real estate developers, thou shalt not build here. Yeah, I think that is um, something that we need to start thinking about as wildfire and heat waves get worse with climate change. So, you know, at the individual level, I think it's a good idea for people who are thinking about moving to do their research and really look into whether, you know, the area they're looking at or even the specific house they're looking at has a high risk of wildfire or high heat in the summer. Um, But I think there's also a role for city planners and policymakers to start disincentivizing increased development in some of these areas, uh, like in the wildland urban interface out in the hills and the woods where people are right up against the forest and the most flammable areas. And maybe also to encourage real estate agents and real estate websites to start listing information about some of these threats so people are more aware. And to Charles' point about, uh, you know, government should be stepping in and maybe putting some more restrictions there, and and you were addressing that as well. Uh, There's also the uh, pressure from the other side, these real estate developers. Is it a matter of, and I'm being cynical here, is it a matter of the real estate developers making money hand over fist selling some of these homes in these areas because they tend to be more expansive and nicer because you're in a more wide open area? But also, uh, cynically, I'm thinking they can say, hey, if your house burns down, we'll build it again and sell it again? Well, I'm, I'm really no expert in the real estate uh, realm, but I think, um, I, I think for, for a lot of people, because they're, they're not thinking about this, they're maybe moving more into harm's way without being aware of it. And I think another important point about this is that the more we develop uh, more houses, more infrastructure, roads, and have more human activity in some of these most flammable areas, that human activity is actually one of the things sparking wildfires. So I think um, it's not just that people are moving into harm's way. In some ways, they're exacerbating the danger of wildfires by sparking more fires. So I think from both ends of the picture, it's worth disincentivizing that development. I mean, but, but there are some people who who are very knowing of the situations they're moving to and, and do it anyway. And I'm thinking of uh, a quick story. When I first came out here at California, I was covering an area that there were a lot of mudslides. In, and there were mudslides because of torrential rains, but there also had been fires. It was a fire area, and that's why the mudslides. And I was talking to this one woman, and she was very distraught because her house was, was wiped away by the mud. And I felt so bad for her. And then she said in the middle of my interview on television, she said, and this is the seventh time this has happened. 
Yeah. And I looked at her and I said, why don't you move? And her response was, because I like the sound of nature. So so there, I mean, you know, what do you do? What do you do with a person like that who knowingly puts themselves in in areas, whether it's prone to fires or floods or mudslides, because they like the sound of, I don't know, seagulls. uh, And if they have to keep rebuilding, they figure they'll just keep on rebuilding. Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent um, there's an element of human psychology where uh, some folks in California who've just grown up around wildfires, they're they're used to hearing about fire warnings, they're used to evacuating every few years, and they just figure that's part of life and it's worth it for all the things they love about their home and the place that they've always lived. Um, I think when, when you think about wildfires and, and landslides like you're getting at, we also need to think about who are the people who are affected. You might have people who, you know, knowingly make that choice, fully aware of the risks. Um, and then in some cases, you might have more affluent people who uh, buy a fancy house there for the scenery, and they can afford to take all of the measures they need to do with reinforced uh, foundations, with clearing brush, um, you know. And on the flip side, you might have people who actually might want to move away after their home is burned down or after they've been threatened by wildfires, but they can't afford to move or because of the way that their insurance is structured, they're, they're locked into rebuilding in mm-hmm. the same place. So you might have people who are making a decision where we might question their logic, but you have other people who might be kind of trapped and that's right. where policy could also step in. Right. Thank you so much. Uh, Mahalia Clark, one of the study authors there about people moving to wildfire areas and they want to hear the sounds of nature, the sounds of the crackling yes. fire burning seven, in the forest. Seven Very times relaxing. that woman yes. rebuilt. Seven, seven times. Seven times. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. This time of year, movie theaters usually play many of the films that generate Oscar buzz, but there's a big problem right now. Hardly anyone is watching them in the theaters. Yeah, people are opting to stay home to watch them on streaming networks. This is obviously bad for the theaters, which raises the question, are we seeing the slow death of the movie theater? Sean Robbins is chief (laughs) analyst at Box Office Pro. Sean, thanks for being with us, well, of course, you know, throughout uh, the history of cinema, as you know, there have been many premature uh, pronouncements of the death of the movie theater, uh, especially when television came along. And, of course, the movie theaters managed to adapt and change and thrive. But have they finally sort of reached their Waterloo? I I don't think so. And I, the reason I, I think we still have to be a little patient is because we're seeing, we, you know, we had a great summer at the box office. A lot of movies came out, did well. Most of them were blockbusters, but some of those movies were still those lower to middle tier films that the market needs. Movies like Elvis, The Black Phone, Everything Everywhere All at Once was a big art house indie hit. I think what we're seeing now is a shift in consumer tastes and what they want to go see in the movie theater and after the last two or three years, I, th- I think that's understandable and honestly something that was kind of expected, depending on on your point of view on the industry. And this has really expedited maybe a shift in those those trends because even before the pandemic, we were starting to see some of these prestige titles fall off in terms of box office revenue. Yeah, it strikes me that uh, some of these uh, smaller uh, smaller films, we call them smaller films, more story-based uh, uh, adult films, aren't doing as well because people are saving their money and their time to go to the theater 
uh, to experience the big blockbusters, the CGI extravaganzas, the superhero films. And I remember it was it was years ago. Steven Spielberg said that he didn't think if he made Lincoln then he would be able to get it into theaters. And this was years ago. I think about 10 years ago he was saying this. So is that the case, that smaller films are being saved for people to watch at home? Well, far be it for me to disagree with Steven Spielberg at any point in the timeline. Uh, Yeah, I think there's something to that. And we really see that play out since then. Streaming has boomed. We've hit peak streaming at this point to the point where it's now a matter of who's going to sign up for what. And I think a lot of the byproduct byproduct of that is the fact that the, the, you know, the strength of streaming has been episodic, dramatic series that help retain subscribers. And that's tapped into a lot of the audience that didn't have that more than 10 years ago. And they went to see these prestigious dramas in the theater around this time of year when the award season and Oscar season was, was building up. Now it's, it's kind of like that year round for consumers at home when they're watching either The Crown or Better Call Saul or name whatever other drama you want. They're in, plentiful in, in terms of being available on the TV screen. So then is the near future of movie theaters just places to go to watch endless Marvel films? <laughs> I don't think so. I think this is this is part of the evolutionary process. I, I you know Again, I point to movies like Elvis and The Black Phone and Smile This Fall. Yes, comic book movies, big blockbusters are still going to be the cash cows of the business, but I, I still think there's a place for those, those maybe, you know, dramas, they still need to evolve. The, the problem is this year, we haven't had a Ford versus Ferrari or a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We had a Knives Out and it was called Glass Onion, but Netflix only kept it in theaters for one week, but it did really well for that one week. I, I see this being something that as we finally get away from the lingering production timeline issues out of the pandemic, Hollywood's going to adapt because these studios want to make money and they know they make money in theaters. They're going to have to adapt that product for the theaters. But even with a genre uh, uh, product, like I'm thinking of the TV show Andor on uh, on Disney Plus, it's based in the Star Wars universe. I mean, you watch the quality of that. And that is a that's a that's a big CGI movie level quality thing that years ago you would have only seen on the big screen. But now you're seeing this on television in a format that can't be shown in a theater because it is a series. It's it's 10 episodes of of this very long uh, character based thing. And that has something to do with it too doesn't not that the quality of of what's available in streaming without even having any intention of going to the theaters is uh, picking up that's a fair point you know and i think that again kind of goes back to to what i see as being the the deciding factor for how consumers want to spend their money if they see a, a two hour or two and a half hour movie that is in theaters it looks like escapism it'll be a good time it's worth paying for parking and a babysitter they're going to go see that so i think star wars and marvel's they're kind of their own thing because they've proven that they can work work on both ends. They work at home. They work in theaters. That's why they're the IPs that they are. It's going to be a little more challenging, I think, to get that original IP established. And maybe, honestly, that could be the, the benefit that comes out of this because this might push studios to invest a little bit more in riskier filmmaking to put into theaters, something that really fell by the wayside. This is a risk-averse industry we're talking about. If it's not guaranteed to make money, it's very risk, very realistic that theaters weren't going to put a lot of money behind it with rare exception. You know, maybe this you, you know, earlier, right. You know, earlier I was only half joking or well, maybe, maybe a quarter joking. But yeah, so yeah. fine. Uh, that, that maybe some of the reason people aren't flocking to movie theaters were these Oscar sort of quote Oscar type films is many of them aren't all that 
good. And I know you didn't want to take on Steven Spielberg, but I will. I don't care. So, Steven, if you're listening, uh, his autobiographical, semi-autobiographical film, which I did see in the theater, um, you know, it's on my own personal opinion. I just didn't think it was all that good, considering it was Steven Spielberg. And it's not doing particularly well, if I'm correct, at the box office. So is it because people have just sort of, they've gone maybe once or twice since the pandemic kind of has loosened its grip. They've dipped their toe into the waters and they don't like what they're seeing. And so they go, no, no more. I'm not going to spend 25 bucks to see something that's not all that great. You know, it's it's tough to speak for everybody. I think everybody's going to have different opinions on the movies, but I, I do think there's something to your point because when we look at, you know, even the Fablemans is a very unique situation. Historically, movies about Hollywood and movies about directors have not had a lot of commercial mainstream appeal. And even though it's receiving good reviews, it'll do well on the awards circuit. I think the broader availability of what award movies have been out there speaks to the fact that most of middle America feels like these movies have become out of touch with they what they want to see. That's why Oscar ratings have declined in recent years. And that's not a commentary on quality or artistry. It's just a reality that the industry is going to have to face. All right. Thank you. Uh, Sean Robbins, chief analyst at Box Office Pro. And if Spielberg likes my email yeah, I disavow so. <laughs> uh, uh, Charles' comments on Steven Spielberg because I worship at the altar of oh, Spielberg. Do, do yes, you I do. do you Him know? and Christopher Nolan, I will drop everything yeah. to go see a movie that, so, that those two directors All right, did. so did you see the semi-autobiographical? Because no, <laughs> I don't okay. feel like going to the theater. <laughs> okay, coming up. <laughs> how, how did people na- navigate the tricky world of dating? When inflation can make a first impression very, very expensive. Well, the weekend is here. See how observant we are? Mm-hmm. The weekend is here, and that means lots of people are getting ready to go out on dates. Maybe some of you are racing home right now, uh, leaving your jobs <laughs> to get re- <laughs> who's ra- Who's racing home now? <laughs> I don't see anybody racing out there. Okay, but okay, they're racing home to get ready. Yeah, you have to buy the premise to buy the bit. Yes. That's what they say, okay. right? Yeah. Right. So, so, you're, so you're, picture, you're racing home. Okay, you're buying that so far. Okay. Yeah. To, get, to get ready for your date uh, tonight. Dating today, though, is hard uh, because of inflation and concerns about the economy, and that's making it even tougher. There's a new survey from uh, The Balance that finds 85% of people dating say that inflation is impacting their behavior when they go out. With us is uh, Krista Myers, editor-in-chief of TheBalance.com, which helps people with personal finances. So uh, thank you for joining us. How is uh, inflation affecting dating behaviors? What behaviors are we talking about? Yeah. So essentially, we're finding that a lot of daters are saying, hey, you know, taking people out to dinner and and to drinks over and over and over again while trying to find love is getting, frankly, far too expensive. So instead, they're looking for different ways and other options like virtual dates or free dates or going for walks in the park instead. So they're saying, hey, we're going to have to try to dial it back on how much we're actually going out and spending. And we actually did find that because the amount that they're spending on the date is exactly the same this year as it was compared to last year. So that means because inflation is up over 7%, they are starting to try to spend a little bit less. But thanks to that inflation, it actually has it means that they're spending almost the exact same amount on that date as they were last year. But to also be blunt, are some people just going right for the sex and they're deciding not to go on a, on a date and they're just <laughs> bypassing the movie and the, and the mm-hmm. restaurant? Is well, we didn't happening? ask them. Well, we didn't ask them that. No, I would, but, but I would is that honestly, what's happening? Is that what's I, I happening? Would, I, 
I couldn't tell you if that's what's <laughs> happening. It might be. It might be, honestly. But what we are seeing is people are saying, listen, we can't afford to spend as much as we used to um, thanks to inflation. And, and frankly, actually, daters are out there and saying, hey, I'm actually OK with a cheaper date now. <laughs> you know, I've, I've had friends go through, you know, periods where they were kind of out of work for a little while. And 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 that will affect your dating life, because I had a friend tell me I'm not dating right now until I can get some more money in the bank because uh, he wanted uh you know, to to be able to go out and enjoy and and take somebody out to a dinner rather than look like he was a cheap guy. So we actually asked people how much you would have to spend or rather how little you would have to spend to be considered a cheap date. And they said, if you spend $50 or less, it is considered a cheap date. And while people say say at least that they are more tolerant of being taken out on a cheap date, if you pay, so if you pick up the check, and also how much you spend on the date is actually going to impact your chances on a second date. So your friend making that decision to be a little bit more financially stable before he decided to go out dating again was probably the right call. Because otherwise, if he kept asking everyone to, you know, go Dutch and split the check, he probably wouldn't have gotten that second date. And as, as Charles might say, second date meaning sex. Well, we again, <laughs> we we have no idea what these people are doing on what dates. And oh, yes, when. we do. But oh, yes, I will tell you this. You know what they're not doing? Yeah. They're actually not talking about money. I will say that. They're they, not. Uh, wait a very long time. Actually, the first topic that you could ever bring up that will guarantee pretty much that you're going to get ghosted is talking about marriage. The second thing to bring up kids on the first date. The third <laughs> to talk about debt. They do not want to hear you talk about money on your first date at that all. Explains so much about my life. So, so what are what are good things to talk about on a first date? What you do and things about your personality. These are totally safe areas, uh, safe topics of conversation. The the beginning, getting to know you stuff. What's your hobbies? What do you do for a living, for example? But if you want to talk about wealth or marriage or money. You're going to have to wait a while. So what you don't want to do in the first date is say something like, I'm broke. Let's get a slice of pizza and hop on the subway. Is that it? If yeah. you know you what I mean, and I think you people, do. You don't want to tell people you're in a ton of debt. Then you don't, when the check comes, ask them to to split the bill oh, yeah. on a $40 date. That now, is essentially the golden rules that we're finding. Now, hold on, because my story is a little bit different. It is? A at the time, I was not dating. I was yeah. not interested in dating at the time. I was coming out of a relationship, yeah. and I was not dating. And I was working at another radio station where my current wife was also working at the time. Yeah. Now, we began talking, mm -hmm. and because I was not interested in dating at the time, I talked about all the things you're not supposed to talk about on a date. Yeah. I talked about my relationship troubles, the money troubles I was having, because I was not trying to date. But now here we are. Yeah, but you ended up married. Yes, now here we are married. <laughs> Okay, so I will say this, just because daters don't want to talk about money on the first date doesn't mean you actually should never talk about money, right? So we actually asked them, when do you think it's okay to talk about things like marriage or, or money? And when it came to the topic of marriage, they said you had to wait 20 dates or more. Uh, wow. So if you figure if you're going on one date a week, that's 20 weeks that you have to wait before you ever even discuss, you know, something a, like marriage. That's a commitment right there. Right. And then if you want to talk your income or your debt, you're going to have to wait five or 10 dates to bring that up. But I will say this. We already know that money problems are one of the leading causes of divorce. And so it is something that you want to talk about prior to 
getting engaged or moving in together, especially if you want to actually make it go the distance. And so it obviously probably was a good thing that you talked to your wife about all of these topics well before marriage. But she knew what she was getting into. First, yeah. But you didn't do it on the first date. And that's what matters. <laughs> <laughs> trying to remember what we talked about on our uh, first date. I don't remember. No. Uh, Charles wasn't there, so he can't help no, me No, I have no idea yeah. what you're talking about. All right. Uh, thank you uh, so much, uh, Kristen Myers, editor-in-chief at TheBalance.com. Uh, uh, I, do, I do wonder, though, if, if your wife has a different version of the story. For probably. Probably does. Most likely. But no, I don't think so, because she yeah. has told other people that story. Like, here's this guy talking to me about his relationship. and like, what is going on? But, yeah, but uh, she probably says that story in front of you. Behind your yes. back, who knows what oh, she's who saying. Oh, yeah. who knows? Who knows? There's no telling what kind of things she's complaining about. <laughs> anyway, this has been KNX In-Depth. We will be back uh, Monday.